From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Let's start with the story that um, really unfolded last summer. This was the announcement of the state's lowest performing schools. There was a lot of uh, attention paid to that, a lot of consternation about the schools that made it onto the list. I haven't heard a lot about it since. But you took a closer look at what's been going on, at least in one of those uh, one of those districts that was uh, identified as uh, as needing help. Yeah, this was kind of a, a check-in story that I did, Kevin. And the idea was we've got this new accountability plan. If you listened to the podcast a lot last year, you would have heard about the development of the accountability plan and how it ties in with the federal ESSA law. That's the Every Student Succeeds Act. And so as part of Idaho's new accountability plan, they identified the lowest performing public schools in the state. There were 29 of them based on a number of different criteria, multiple kind of student outcomes and achievement type criteria pieces. And when those were all tallied up and weighted, the schools that performed in the bottom 5% were identified as the lowest performing schools. Like we said, there were 29 of them. And it's important to point out at the same time, the state also recognized some high flyers, some high performing schools along with uh, the low-performing schools. But the low-performing schools is where there's actually you know, some targeted help right. coming. Yeah, and that was the point of the check-in, is to try and find out, okay, since this release, uh, since this list was released in August, we're coming to the end of the school year here, what have we done? And so I really uh, centered in on the Bruno Grandview School District and its experience. It had two uh, schools make the, the list of 29, one of the elementary schools and then the junior senior high. And so I, I spoke with the superintendent, Ryan Cantrell, and a school turnaround expert named Ernie Lewis, a former superintendent in the Valley View District, uh, who's working to help uh, the Bruno District turn it around. And it's important to point out that, you know, we're just at the f- end of the first year since the list was released. So there's no real hard data, no sure. new hard numbers to go on. But I sort of wanted to check in and find out what steps are they taking? How are they embracing this? How are they reacting to this? And at least in Bruno, the Superintendent Cantrell told me the worst part of it was the first day, right? When, mm-hmm. when the list goes public and your schools are in the paper uh, on this list of schools that need improvement, the lowest performing schools in the state, that's frustrating. You know, it was a little bit demoralizing, but I think they quickly realized that, you know, sitting around and feeling sorry for themselves um, wasn't going to help improve the student outcomes that got them on the list. And so they've, it seems to me like they've really taken ownership of it and viewed it as an opportunity to improve. They've embraced working with the capacity builder. And at the beginning of the year, they kind of focused on a couple of quick wins that they could really celebrate. Some IRI school scores, which was a different test, were looking, were showing improvement. They They seized on that and celebrated that. They focused on you know, increasing the completion of homework, mm-hmm. uh, that percentage is, is on the rise and they were feeling good about that. But what they've really done is identified that math is one of their weak spots. And so they've turned into... Like a, a lot of the state. I yeah, mean, yeah like, it's not new. Um, but like a lot of the state, they've identified that math is one of their weak spots. And so they turned in an improvement plan to the State Department of Education. The beginning of March and the beginning of April, it was improved. And what the district is going to do is going to roll out a new math curriculum next year during the 2020 school year and focus on some targeted professional development for their teachers. That's a big part. That's one of the parts of their strategies. They're also working on 
kind of changing the culture over there and having it be about mutual accountability and, and mutual respect and buying in and looking at data. They're really, uh, the capacity builder, the turnaround expert, Ernie Lewis, is really focusing on classroom observations, everything from instruction technique to classroom management to how much the students are engaged and on task and providing feedback. So they're looking at the culture, they're looking at the math curriculum, they're looking for some professional development experience. Uh, and instruction for their teachers. And so they do have a strategy in place in talking to them. You know, it, it wasn't just that they want to get off the low-performing schools list. That certainly is one of their goals, and that's one of their objectives. But you're going to be on the list for three years. You're going to be on the list for three years. So they're looking to build something sustainable, to have a plan in place that they can rely on that can kind of guide them, hopefully off the list, and then into better success in the future. I spoke with a couple of the State Department of Education officials that are involved with this. Carlin Laraway, the Director of Assessment of Accountability, and uh, Karen C., the Federal Programs Director. And they said, you know, anecdotally, they, they seem pretty encouraged with how the schools have responded. There have been two different uh, large-scale meetings with the low-performing districts in the fall and in the spring. All the plans were approved on April 1st. And so those plans are being implemented. You know, right now it's the tail end of the school year, so it's hard to do too much. But I think a lot of those plans will really be implemented in the next school year. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to start to see new assessment data available when the new ISAT test results are out. You know, those tests are being administered right now in schools all across the state. And we'll start to see those results available and start to maybe right. look at, are there some bright spots? Are there some areas of, improve, uh, areas of improvement? Are, are, are there still troubling points, struggle points? But the, the point of the story was kind of a check-in, but I knew there wasn't going to be a lot of hard data. So it was more about the mindset and the approach and the attitude. And that was kind of right. what I tried kind of to report out. a case study of how the Bruno district and the superintendent Bruno is, is dealing with you know, some, some sobering news. When you get on a list like this, like you say, you know, that's a bad day at the office. Yeah. But what I, do you do with it after? And, and I think that's all what it comes down to is what do you do to it after? You can't change, you know, it wasn't an error. Uh, you can't change the fact that the list came out. And so what do you do once that's out? And it, and it seems like uh, Ryan Cantrell, the superintendent, their capacity builder, Ernie Lewis, and their teaching and administrative teams, it looks like they are you know, buying into this. I, you know, I also know they have a lot of young administrators and a lot of teachers who are in the beginning stages of their career out in Bruno Grandview. And, and, you know, that's what Ernie told me is that, you know, maybe they weren't the ones that were there for a long time that, you know, were leading the schools and teaching when, when they got on the list or when they started, you know, low performing enough to get on the list, but they've accepted the responsibility to get them out of there. So a young staff, uh, both teaching and administrative over in Bruno Grandview. But it sounds like they're buying in, and it sounds like, at least for now, uh, they have a plan and they want to execute that plan. So it'll be which interesting is, to see. Which, in theory, is what you're hoping to accomplish when you do a low-performing schools list, is not yeah. to you know, humiliate and shame the districts and the schools that are on the list, but to say, you know, you, you need some, you need to improve, you need to turn things around, what's it going to take to turn it around? And yeah, that, that's exactly right, and, and that's a good point. Um, the superintendent mentioned that when the list came out. He wondered how this would be treated because he said he was talking to folks who remember back in the No Child Left Behind era where it was sort of name, blame, and shame, and he worried about what would happen when that list came out. But he said he's actually been fairly pleased with the support 
he's gotten from the state. They went out and visited, I think, 20 other different schools to find out what they were doing well and what they could replicate. There's some additional federal funding that they got a share of. But he says, you know, it's been a positive, supportive environment rather than a, hey, look over here uh, kind of an environment where they're naming, blaming, and shaming. And so... Yeah, I wanted to report on the culture and the mindset and what's happened and the buy-in. And and I've kind of tentatively made plans to physically go out and spend a little bit more time in Bruno Grandview in the fall of 20, uh, in the fall of this upcoming school year, the 1920 school year, to take a look at that new math curriculum, to maybe sit in on some professional development, uh, to maybe watch one of those classroom observations. So I, I hope to go out there in the fall and take a closer look, and then we'll have some more data available certainly this summer and this fall, too. Ongoing story, but a good update, and you can read all about that at idahoidnews.org. All right, sounds good. Kevin, you took a look at some new data that was available, um, but you took a closer look at our bullying data, and you found uh, really some concerning numbers. But what what was the overall trend, and then what were some of the things that, that jumped out at you from this report? The overall trends are not good here. This is a report that came from the federal government. It was released about a month ago, and it is it, it strikes me very similar to what the state has done with its own surveys of high school students to right. try to get at you know risky behaviors. It's it's it it quantifies uh, you know, student behaviors in a lot of different areas to try to get a sense of behaviors that can lead to. You know, safety issues at the school. So it, it goes to, you know, do students feel threatened in school? You know, are there physical fights in school, uh, weapons in school, which is an interesting uh, you know, set of data as pertains to Idaho, and we'll get to that in a couple of minutes. But the numbers that really jumped out at me, they're similar to what we've seen collected at the state level from student surveys, but they're still pretty sobering numbers. Uh, about one in four students in Idaho, ninth through 12th graders say that they've been bullied on school grounds. When you factor in cyberbullying, it's one in five students who say that they've been, been bullied online. Those numbers have increased over the past few years in Idaho. At the same time, these numbers have decreased nationally. Now, that, And that's also an interesting sidelight here. So Idaho's trend is upside down to what's happening based on the national yeah. results, based on the, the, the national findings. So I talked to a couple of um, administrators about these numbers, and the premise was just basically, hey, here are the numbers I'm looking at. What do you make of them? And uh, you know, I talked to a couple of uh, vice principals, one in Nampa, one in Coeur d'Alene, and some interesting takes on the numbers. Uh, Phil Diplock is the uh, the vice principal at Columbia High School over in Nampa. Okay. And he said that he's a little bit skeptical about the national numbers. It doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to him that cyberbullying rates on a national level would be going down over the past few years when social media use is so prevalent, when yeah. kids are spending so much time on their smartphones, on social media platforms. Now, that's a plausible point. I'm not enough of an expert on the national data. But his, his take on what's happening in Idaho with the, with the reporting is... Maybe kids are feeling more comfortable being honest about what's going on. That when he was a kid, and you know, I think we can relate to this. I can relate to it as a kid. If something happened, you didn't necessarily go and report it. You just sort of absorbed it and you sort of internalized it. And you, you you kept it to yourself. And 
Well, generally it's, speaking, there was sort of a boys will be boys mentality, and, and, and that probably kind of wasn't a, really healthy. You know, nobody wants to be seen as the you know you know, the wimpy kid who whines to the principal. But, you know, and, and that's, a, that's a bad mindset that uh, hopefully uh, students are getting past and getting over. Because it does, you're not a wimpy kid and it's not whining to the exactly, principal. Exactly. That, I mean, but that's, yeah. it's an old mindset that, you know... That needed you know, to be busted. That needed to be broken. So absolutely. So what he's seeing is, you know, you know kids maybe are more comfortable coming forward and, and speaking up when they see something or when they experience something. Um... But this is a hard problem to, to overcome. As I talked to him, to Diplock and as I talked to um, Brian Kelly, who's the assistant principal in Coeur d'Alene at Lake City High School, we talked about, well, what do you do? And at Columbia High School, a couple of things that they're trying to do, uh, they have mentoring time. Uh, you know, kids with, uh, with staff, you know, spending some time every week just sort of getting some mentoring and not even really just mentoring about academics, but maybe mentoring and, you know, some, some face time to talk about uh, how are you doing? How are you feeling? How are things going? And he thinks Diplock feel, feels that that maybe is creating a climate where, where kids feel more comfortable saying something if something is going on. Another thing that they do at Columbia is a school where you have one-to-one uh, student uh, learning devices. They have filters. They can yeah. watch. They can see if uh, if kids have uh, sent something threatening. Have uh, you know? Have, have they used profane language? Have they you know, you know? They can look for a lot of things. They can look for references to drug use or alcohol use. Now, the obvious limitation is that those filters are only you know extend to the school issued right. one to one learning device. And if a and if a kid is doing something on uh, his or her smartphone. Uh, or personal device that isn't a school device, there's no way of tracking that. Um, both Kelly and Diplock talked about the need to take any kind of uh, incident seriously the first time around, even if they hear from the kids, oh, I was only kidding. I, I didn't mean it. I, I wasn't trying to be threatening. I thought I was joking. You know, they both said, you know, you take it seriously. You take that first report seriously. You get the kid uh, in front of the SRO and you, you know, bring the parents in because sometimes the parents don't know what's going on. They don't know what their, their children are doing online and what they're saying or doing online. And you really kind of reinforce the idea of you can be suspended. You can be expelled for this. You can face criminal charges for this. I mean, there, there are serious implications for, for bullying. So it was kind of a, a way to look at the numbers and get a sense of what at least a couple of administrators and a couple of schools are trying to do to combat it. As I mentioned before, some interesting things in the numbers, um, drug and alcohol use uh, lower in Idaho schools relative to the national average. Uh, marijuana use has decreased a little bit over the past few years, and I found that interesting, especially because there's been so much attention paid to uh, the legalization that's going on in neighboring states uh, such as Washington and Oregon. And you know, when I talked to to Kelly up in uh, up in Coeur d'Alene, he said, "Yeah, you know, we're 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 20 minutes away from the Washington line, but I'm really not seeing much of a difference." Uh, same story in Nampa, which isn't that far away from the Oregon border. Uh, what both uh, Kelly and Diplock talked about as being a bigger problem right now is vaping in schools, uh, much more prevalent, much more of a problem. Before we get away from all these numbers, because I can talk for a long time about numbers, as you all know, <laughs> some numbers I thought were really, really interesting, just because, just because they're interesting. Um, 
weapons reports in Idaho schools, about 10% of students said that they brought a quote-unquote weapon to schools. And that's a really high number. That's much higher than the national average. Only Alaska had a higher percentage. But when you looked at firearms, the numbers were lower, considerably lower than the national average. So that weapon definition is where it gets really interesting because it takes in clubs and knives in addition to guns. And what I heard from, from Phil Diplock and what I heard from Brian Kelly, and I probably would have heard it from principals or administrators in almost any school in the state, especially in rural Idaho, is we got a lot of kids who hunt and fish and farm, and yeah. they carry pocket knives and symbols. They just carry it absent-mindedly to school. They just have it in their, you know, attached to their jeans, and they don't think much of it, or they have it in their backpack, and they don't, don't think much of it. So it's often a matter of the administrator right. saying, "Yeah, you really shouldn't bring that pocket knife to school, even though I have, you know, even though you probably just didn't realize you had it on your person, you didn't mean anything by it." Don't do that. <laughs> it's kind of the, the first step sometimes with that. So it, it varies. I mean, you know, you know, they'll they'll do more obviously if a student is bringing a large knife and is threatening uh, a student with it. Then that's a whole different matter. But that weapons definition and those weapons numbers I find interesting. But they require some explanation because if you see that number, right. it's like holy cow, what's going on in the schools? I mean, is you know. I think some context is, is absolutely important. <laughs> yeah, there. because when I saw the numbers at first, I was like, wow, that's that's kind of that's kind of unsettling. That's kind of sobering. But it's it you know, there is definitely an asterisk to it. So we tried to break down the numbers. But definitely the bullying was what jumped out at me, especially because there's been so much attention paid to bullying. We have a new law that went into effect a few years ago, I think it was 2015. Uh, State Superintendent Ibarra has talked about bullying, has seen some of these numbers, similar kind of but numbers. She's made bullying a big part of, of her campaign as yeah. superintendent, her election we, campaign, her time in office. She has really tried bullying. to put the bullying issue war, front and center. War on bullying were her exact words going yeah. back to like 2017. Uh, that was kind of the genesis of her school safety proposal uh, going back to 2018 and yeah. 19. I mean, this has been... This has been a big issue around the state house. This has been a big issue in education circles, and the numbers. Granted, these are two-year-old numbers, but they're, you know, they tell you that there are definitely concerns when students are asked about this, because that's where those numbers came from to a large degree. When students are asked about what's happening in schools, a lot of them are saying, you know, they're experiencing bullying. Yeah, it's more and more a part of the education conversation that we hear in political and policy circles, but bullying, uh, about the mental health of our students, about student safety, kind of this holistic approach. Uh, we've talked about counseling and how we use our counselors and not just career and college level advice type counseling, but mental health uh, and bullying and all kinds of more of a holistic approach. And it's becoming more and more and more a part of the education conversation that and, we hear. And yeah, you know, obviously it's it's all being looked at, and I wrote this story this week with the backdrop of what happened in Colorado, another another tragic school shooting. Um, yeah. you know, but you know things like bullying, bullying rates, you know that may never escalate to something you know that grabs the national spotlight like a, like a school shooting does. But in that household and for that student and for that student's family, this is such a, a 
you know, you know, such a hard issue to face. And and when you start to think about those numbers, I mean, you think about one in four students saying that they were bullied, uh, one in five students saying that they were bullied online. That's you know, that's scary stuff. It's interesting to me, and I haven't done the side-by-side comparisons or almost the forensic accounting that would need to be involved to get to the bottom of this, but it really strikes me just looking at the conclusions of that report and some of the state-level incident reports that it, it strongly suggests that a lot of this bullying isn't rising to the level of generating a formal report because formal bullying reports are something that the state tracks, and the raw number of bullying reports that the state reports they don't rise to the level of one in four students. Right. So it just suggests to me that a lot of these are incidents that, for whatever reason, uh, aren't being reported, aren't going all the way to triggering an official state report, um, because we do track those as well. And so that there's a difference between what the students are reporting, they're experiencing, versus the incident reports that are winding up in public records. And, right. and to me, that's that's interesting. It's not necessarily surprising for the reasons you talked about at the beginning, whether it's maybe it happens on campus or off campus, maybe a student, you know, is reluctant to come forward and report it, any number of reasons, but it, it's, I don't know, it, it, it's interesting. There can be a difference between a student saying in a survey, I feel right. like I've been bullied, I, I feel like this has happened, and taking that next step of going to the principal, going to the right. SRO, going to a teacher uh, confidant and saying, I'm, I'm at my, you know, I'm in a bad situation here. This is really, I've got to report it. I've, I've got to get help here. Yeah. You know, that's a whole different step and a hard step for a, a student to take. So that, that may explain some of the disconnect in mm-hmm. the numbers, but, yeah. you know, definitely a warning sign in these numbers. For sure, a warning sign. Uh, I appreciate you tracking that. If you want to get some more information about that, if you want to find out a little bit about the issue, IdahoEdNews.org is the place to go. Um, and you can find your bullying story from a couple of days ago. Hard to make a transition from from those really sobering, really human numbers to budget numbers, but there are some budget numbers that we should get to before we sign off for this week. Some state budget numbers that you tracked uh, this week, some federal numbers that I uh, that I reported on. Let's start with the state numbers. What did they say and what do they mean? It's kind of a mixed bag, Kevin. I looked at the April revenue report, and this is a big one because this includes some of our tax day filings. And, you know, it may seem weird. Why are we talking about budgets and revenues on an education podcast? But the one thing to keep in mind is K-12 public school spending is Idaho's largest general fund expense every year. Almost half the budget goes to public schools, and so that's the expense side of it. Revenue is the money coming in to pay for those programs, and so that's why we watch revenue so closely. But mixed bag in April. For the individual month of April, the revenues beat their projections by something like $36 million. It was a good news for the individual month, and a lot of people had pointed to April because of it's the, big month. the revenue collections coming in from tax filings. Yeah. And for months... All throughout the current fiscal year, there were multiple consecutive months of revenues not meeting expectations. And we'll talk about that in a second. But it created some concern in legislative circles. A lot of it was due to changes to the tax law and tax withholding changes and whether Idahoans you know, were having uh, enough pulled out of their paycheck every mm-hmm. week to comply with the two new tax laws on the federal and the state stage. So everybody was looking to April. April itself was good enough, but the thing... Then I'm going to watch, and I think you don't want to get lost in the shuffle of the good news from the individual month of April, 
is year to date, we're still behind. And Idaho runs on a fiscal year schedule. The new fiscal year begins July 1st, so we've only got two months left. And even if revenues met their projections for the final two months, we'd still be behind for the year, still be down. And I think the individual income tax is a concern uh, because even with a strong April, it's off from its yearly projection by something like 91 or $92 million. And so that's a concern. I talked to Representative Wendy Horman. She's an Idaho Falls Republican uh, who serves as a vice chair on the Joint Budget Committee. She said she's concerned that the revenues may not meet their target for the year. And so what does that mean? I, I think in the current budget year, uh, we're fine. The legislature left an ending balance and that they're going to carry that balance over into the next budget year. But that bottom line is, is projected to get smaller. They were hoping to leave more than a $100 million ending balance. Now it's looking like it might be more like an $80 million balance. And so that's so the, bottom the line. I mean, unless there's like a real change and a real downturn, what was approved in March and April in terms of the budgets for next school year probably won't be jeopardized. The question comes, though, beyond that. Future years. Yeah, future years. And whether or not, is this the new normal? Was there an error in the withholding calculation table? What's going on here? Um, And so I think there's going to be some continued caution and some continued scrutiny of the budget and revenue for years going forward. Right now, it looks like we're fine. The legislature left an ending balance. They're going to carry that over. But that ending balance is getting smaller, and that's the first building block of the next year's budget. So it's something to watch. Uh, nothing in the immediate future right now that I would say is a, is a big cause of concern because of that cushion. Um, but I think it's something that legislators are going to continue to watch. And is this the new normal? You know, it, Are income tax collections going to miss their projections on the individual side of things? I don't know. Um, well, but revenues are a concern when they don't meet forecast because... That's how we pay for our budget. That's how we pay for things. And if you think about that 2020 legislative session and you think about some of the chess pieces that might be in play that could affect that budget, whether it's coming up with money to cushion a change to a new school funding formula, coming up with money to continue to increase teacher salaries, especially if you try to do something for veteran teacher salaries. Yeah. If you try to repeal the sales tax on groceries, like uh, Governor Little says he wants to do, and that cuts back on revenue for years, that's revenue. You know, all of that factors into what could be a a a tight budget that could be uh, a tough budget to balance with a lot of uh, difficult decisions to be made. uh, You know, by you know members of JFAC, you know, folks like Wendy Horman, you know, having to figure out. What can we spend money on? What do we have money to spend? What can we afford and what can we not afford? It could be a very uh, tough budgeting session in 2020 if if the revenues are continuing to come in tight. We're a long ways off, but 2020 is looking like a potentially interesting session on a number of different yes. fronts. Um, but I'm not trying to ring the alarm bells, not trying to say that there's a catastrophe or a crisis that's imminent, but just... Keep an eye on this is all I'm saying. Right. It's, it's why really, we write about the revenues right. every month because they do matter. Really good news for the month of April. And people were looking for that. So that was good. But still might not meet the full revenue forecast for the year. Keep an eye on that is all I'm saying. Uh, if you want to drill down to the numbers a little bit more, head over to the homepage, IdahoEdNews.org. 
They could make for an interesting 2020 session when we look at building budgets for the the coming years. I I think right now, because of that ending balance and because of the strong April, looking okay for for right now, looking okay for what's already on the table. But it be interesting to see how legislators look at this when they convene next session. Some federal budget news that affects Idaho schools. Uh, Recently, a bunch of schools around the state, especially in timber country, got a share of $6 million of federal funding. This is the uh, school, uh, easy for me to say, the Secure Rural Schools program that has uh, been in place for almost 20 years, but has been uh, in jeopardy, it seems like, for almost all of those 20 years. I mean, there's been a lot of... uh, Nothing secure about it. No, nothing secure about it. I mean, it's been, uh, it's faced spending, it's faced budget cuts, it's faced... uh, Threaten you know, threats of eliminating the program entirely, and this is a big deal. I mean, for some districts around the state, this is a really big part of their budget. Mm-hmm. And we kind of quantified that. The largest recipient is the Mountain View School District uh, up towards Grangeville. They get more than one million dollars, uh, which they put into a fund, you know, to you know, kind of cushion against uh, reductions in the funding. They use it as sort of a long term. Uh, you know, funding source for, for facilities needs. But for that district, a $1 million infusion of money is a big deal, uh, especially because, uh, as I go into in my story this week, they're facing projections of a shortfall that could be of up to $2 million. They're going to go to voters with a supplemental levy proposal uh, later this month. That $1 million feeding into a fund that they're using for long-term facilities uh needs and facilities uh, repairs that's a big deal that's a that's a huge chunk of money so if you go to Idaho, ednews.org you can get a sense of uh, where that money is going uh, we have a map that shows county by county where the money went uh, wide variations because for some for some school districts uh, this doesn't uh, amount to any money at all uh, for the melba school district it amounts to 80 cents so you know yeah don't spend it all in one place, Melba. But, yeah. uh, but like I say, for, for Mountain View, it is a big deal. It is more than a million dollars for districts like uh, like Kellogg and uh, Orofino and Salmon and uh, you know, McCall Donnelly. It is a big deal. It's about $300,000 and up. So, so some, some big money for some districts in timber country. And this is kind of one of these ongoing issues of how is this thing going to be funded down the road? Um Idaho senators and Oregon senators are working on a bill to try to create an endowment that would fund this thing in perpetuity and take it out of the annual uh, battle for funding in in Congress. Endowments are hard to fund when you start to think about how much it would cost to to feed an endowment. But for now, uh, a $6 million infusion for schools around the state. And we've got the rundown of who gets the money. All right. Thanks for uh, chasing that down. It's been a, a busy week. A couple of other stories we're not going to get into on the podcast, but if you're interested, our Sammy Edge, uh, our newest reporter, and our editor, Jennifer Swindell, went out to Baltimore this week for the Education Writers Conference. Had a chance to hear from Betsy DeVos, U.S. Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, and what she said about a couple of hot-button issues. Sammy's story is available uh, on the homepage. Right. Her first out. time, DeVos, talking to the Education Writers Association, she had rebuffed invitations from the group the past couple of years. She did do the uh, Q&A this time around, so we we got a chance to, to hear from DeVos. And 
We've got that story at uh, idahoednews.org. I had an update earlier this week on the renewal process, the reauthorization process for the administrative rules. That's underway and will be taking place this summer. There's also some new rules going to be coming forward, especially with House Bill 293, the funding formula light bill. Uh, rules to develop how the state will handle the definitions of enrollment and some of these reporting collection type things. Keep an eye out for that to go down this summer. We're still going to be busy uh, up through at least Memorial Day. We do expect perhaps this month we'll get some news about um, a new policy setting effort on education circles. Uh, We've been looking for the governor's office to uh, get its task force together. They received funding during the legislative session. Governor Little announced those plans at the beginning of the session. Maybe this month we'll find out a little bit more about when that group will get to work. We'll keep an eye out for that, but uh, I know we'll be staying busy for the next several weeks, Kevin. And for sure, we will have school elections on May 21st. Uh, I will have a story the first part of next week running down where there are bond issues and levies on the ballot and what's at stake. Uh, We talked about Mountain View earlier in the podcast, but we'll have the full rundown statewide. Uh, We should have that the first part of next week. All right. Good stuff. We will be back uh, next week with another new edition of the Extra Credit Podcast. We always have a lot of fun breaking down this intersection of policy and politics. And so thank you. If you want to stay up to date, give the uh, check out the homepage, idahoednews.org. You can also give us a follow at Idaho Ed News on Twitter. But as always, thanks so much for listening. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.